In the 80s when the bricks came on military plane. I said, fuck Ronald Reagan. Two months ago, I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. That was a lie. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence and tell that was me a it goddamn is not. That's Killer Mike, sort of live annotating another presidential address that Reagan had to give in March of 1987, just a few months after those blanket denials of late 1986. If you remember, we ended last time in November 1986 with the White House in denial mode. After North's middle-of-the-night shredding party, in fact, the next day, Reagan holds a press conference and he's going to try to get out ahead of the news that's going to be breaking about that so-called diversion memo. That one last unshredded piece of evidence found by Justice Department officials in North's office. Now, part of getting out ahead of that news, out ahead of that rapidly growing scandal, means he has to can Oliver North and, and National Security Advisor Poindexter. Another wall like you was Poindexter. And now two initial investigations are begun. The first, an independent counsel investigation, is not going to conclude with a report for like six years, like 1993. So it, it doesn't much matter at the moment. But there's another, the Tower Commission. It's much weaker, and it's sort of an in-house investigation. And it's going to conclude in just a few months. And that weaker in-house Tower Commission report drops in late February. And its findings are bad enough that Reagan is now forced to go back on television that week to confess yet more. A few months ago, I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. Now, another major aspect of the board's findings regards the transfer of funds to the Nicaraguan Contras. The Tower Board wasn't able to find out what happened to this money. So the facts here will be left to the continuing investigations of the court-appointed independent counsel and the two congressional investigating committees. I'm confident the truth will come out about this matter as well. Things are only going to get worse, though. The Tower Commission that Reagan is responding to in, in this address, it was weak, like I said. It, it didn't even have subpoena power to like compel truthful testimony. But... In less than two months, Congress is going to begin hearings in a, in a joint select committee on Iran-Contra, like an official joint select committee on Iran-Contra. And everyone is going to be hauled up to testify under oath. North, Secord, uh, National Security Advisors McFarlane and Poindexter, Abrams, North Secretary and, and Shred Partier, Fawn Hall, basically everyone you've heard named besides Reagan and Bush. The hearings were broadcast on television, and, and the scandal really captured America's attention for months. And suddenly, an obscure National Security Council staffer, Ollie North, is a household name. Colonel North, please rise. That's not applause. Those are camera shots. Do you solemnly swear that in the testimony you're about to give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. I do. Please be sure. By the crash or shoot down of the aircraft Mr. Hassenfuss was on, and Director Casey and I had a lengthy discussion about the fact that this whole thing was coming unraveled, and that things ought to be, quote, cleaned up. And I started cleaning things and up. And when you cleaned them up, 
did you or did you not shred documents that reflected the president's approval of the diversion? Objection. How many times do we have to have... I assumed that the three transactions which I supervised or managed or coordinated, whatever word you're comfortable with, and I can accept all three, were approved by the president. And so all of this is making, you know, making the headlines. It's it's front page of the news. It's 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 you know every night on the on the nightly news on television. But very quietly, there's another Senate investigation begun the year before, back in 1986, and they'd been quietly looking into this increasing evidence of contra-related drug trafficking. Quietly, in, in the summer of 1986, a freshman senator from Massachusetts, a young John Kerry, he met with other members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in a closed session, closed to the public, to judge whether sufficient evidence existed to hold hearings and get testimony under oath. And they would decide that, yes, enough evidence existed, and what we call the Kerry Committee was born. In fact, that closed session to begin the Kerry Committee was just weeks after the New York Times had run those front-page revelations of Manuel Noriega's connection with the Medellin cartel. Now, what Kerry and the committee didn't know was that Noriega, now a known narco, was already in talks with North to continue to allow Noriega to remain a central player in trafficking cocaine to the U.S. in exchange for helping the Contras. What they would find out was that Noriega was only the beginning. The Kerry Committee would find extensive Contra cocaine connections. But even that would only be the beginning because eventually a journalist is going to break an explosive story detailing a massive Contra cocaine pipeline that just flooded America with cocaine at the precise moment that crack was to begin ravaging American cities. Now, we can't talk about drugs without talking about the so-called war on drugs. So I want to start off by having three different folks in, in sort of conversation about this. Two rappers and the lead counsel on that carry committee that I just mentioned in the intro. So Jay-Z, who, who sold crack during the Reagan era, another much younger rapper of today, 21 Savage, and Jack Blum, Senator Kerry's lead counsel on the carry committee. So let's start with Jay. In 1986, when I was coming of age, Ronald Reagan doubled down on the war on drugs that had been started by Richard Nixon in 1971. Drugs were bad, fried your brain, and drug dealers were monsters. The sole reason neighborhoods and major cities were failing. No one wanted to talk about Reaganomics and the ending of social safety nets, the defunding of schools and the loss of jobs in cities across America. Young men like me who hustled became the sole villain and drug addicts lacked moral fortitude. Now here's young rapper of the moment, 21 Savage. He's from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta, Zone 6. And he gets dismissed by a lot of people as a so-called mumble rapper. But 21 says something in a recent noisy documentary that, that I find really profound after having grown up on the, the trap side of Atlanta, the rough side of Atlanta. Manus, have you guys gotten trouble from cops in the neighborhood? Yeah, yeah. 
This before rap, fuck the rap. Nigga, gang tab been taking pictures of me since I was a little boy. Taking pictures of my tattoos, all that shit. Just cause the area where a nigga be hanging at. Right. Like, this a drug area. This a gang area, so. How did it become a drug area? Is this like? The police label it that. Yeah. Cause the whole world is a drug area if you want to be technical. I mean, where's the lie? The whole world is a drug area. The entire U.S. is a drug area. It's just that the authorities select a, a, a certain point in the supply chain to target as the, the criminals responsible for the crisis. The monsters, as Jay describes it, who are almost always the poor ones. And almost always of those poor ones, it's the black folks that get labeled as the real problem. Now here's Jack Blum lead counsel for the Kerry Committee, and who more or less echoes and expands on what 21 Savage said. He says, quote, In our society, a problem addict who merits public attention is an addict who has run out of money. People in the inner city run out of money much more quickly than the stockbrokers, entertainers, and lawyers who have the income and the standing to conceal their narcotics habits. Because the, quote, problem addicts have been in the inner city, the focus of law enforcement has been on the inner city. By definition, wherever police concentrate their efforts, there is a crime wave. Police statistics reflect police activity, not the objective reality of where the crimes are occurring. End quote. But then Blum continues expanding that idea to the highest levels of government during the Contra War. He says, quote, we knew about the connection between the West Coast cocaine trade and the Contras. And what is true is that the policymakers absolutely closed their eyes to the criminal behavior of our allies and supporters in that war. The policymakers ignored their drug dealing, their stealing, and their human rights violations. The policymakers, and I stress policymakers, allowed them to compensate themselves for helping us in that war by remaining silent in the face of their impropriety and by quietly undercutting law enforcement and human rights agencies that might have caused them difficulty. End quote. Reagan's drug war was a selective war. It wasn't a war on drugs so much as it was a war on some people's drugs. On some of the people involved. To the extent that the Reagan administration permitted cocaine to come into the U.S. via their Contra war, well, that's the extent to which we can say that the drug war under Reagan was only a drug war against certain parts of the entire world of drugs. The world of drugs is all drugs and the entire supply chain. From the very beginning of the process to the end user. But it's clear who Reagan chose to make the scapegoats of America's drug problem. Reagan, in 1986, would make it so that users and sellers of powder cocaine were treated with kid gloves by police and the law, and crack users faced harsh punishment. This was literally legislated into law, the so-called 100 to 1 disparity, that meant that you needed 100 times more powder cocaine to get the same sentence as having just the tiniest bit of crack. Crack is not some different substance than powder cocaine. It's just the cocaine that was in the black community. Cocaine is cocaine. It's the same thing. It's the same chemical, whether it's in crack or, or powder form. The difference was that crack was a black drug and powder cocaine, much more expensive. 
powder cocaine is much more expensive, was white. For rich people, for white people. And of course, there are more white drug users than black, but it was black folks, black men, who started being sent off to prison for longer and longer sentences for all of this. What happened during the 80s is that America's drug problem became sort of centered on the figure of the poor black male. The poor black male in the inner city. He became the scapegoat. The entire sort of drug problem of America, which was becoming more and more of an epidemic, was his fault. So much so that a study in the 90s, after Reagan's 80s had sort of shaped our collective consciousness, this study asked folks to close their eyes and imagine a drug criminal. 95% of those people pictured a black person. Thinking every nigga is selling narcotics. I've thought about where to start a story of the war on drugs, and it seems to me that the best place to start is where the last season of The Crux left off, with the assassination of Martin Luther King. Not because Dr. King did drugs, because he didn't, but the story of the drug war is largely the story of the government's relationship with black America, especially black men, and that changes with the civil rights movement. It changes with King, and it changes with his assassination and what happened in, in the wake of that. Now, I'm not saying that the drug war wasn't about drugs. Sure, it was about drugs to some degree, but it was also very much a, a convenient tool used by politicians of both parties to show that they were tough, but tough against that same sort of frightening figure that they'd always singled out to be tough on. Black folks, especially black men. The only difference now is that they, they labeled black men as, as responsible for, for drug use and abuse. The scapegoat for what was now becoming a national problem. State violence against black men, police violence, carceral violence against black men, to most white folks in 1980, when Reagan was running for office, that sort of violence for those white folks for most of their lives had been seen as protective violence. They saw it as protective, protecting law and order against what they, what they felt to be so terrifying. You have to understand how, how fucking scared white folks were of black folks back then how protective they were of the white power structure. This is more difficult for younger folks of today to understand, probably, though, though not at all impossible since it still persists. But the figure of the black man during the decades before Reagan's election, that shit was frightening to the average white voter. The country was hella racist back then. I mean, it is now, but in 1980, when Reagan is running for office, I mean, we're only 12 years out from King's assassination. 1980 was, was on the tail end of the civil rights era, practically. If you remember from season one, Martin Luther King scared the shit out of white people. From your typical Southerner all the way up to the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, to the brass at the Pentagon, to the White House, to Congress. They hated him. They feared him. And King knew they hated him and knew they feared him. And he knew that white America would have to kill him. And that was Dr. King, the steadfast advocate of, of peace and nonviolence. 
If he wasn't violent, then, then why was he scary? Well, he was scary because he was a threat to the order, which was an order of white power, white supremacy, white wealth. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man. So I want to go back to where we left off last season with Dr. King and Governor George Wallace, those two towering figures representing America's two sides, its two paths, progress and white conservatism. So much of his dream dies with King on April 4th, 1968, and so much lives on in George Wallace, whose presidential campaign inspired King's assassination. And George Wallace lives on in the 80s in the campaign and presidency of Ronald Reagan. Washington was only one of the cities in this country finding itself battling violence today. In Chicago, federal troops started arriving tonight after two days of riotous disorders in the nation's second largest The burning city. and the looting of last night continued through most of the daylight hours. At the height of the burning, whole city blocks were set afire. By daybreak, Chicago counted 10... On the night of April 4th, 1968, cities across America burn as the news of King's assassination spreads. It's the same thing the next night and the next. As many as 27,000 people were arrested and 43 people died in what came to be known as the Holy Week Uprising. Stokely Carmichael warned white America on the night of April 5th. When white America killed Dr. King last night, she opened the eyes for every black man in this country. When white America got rid of Marcus Garvey, she did it and she said he was an extremist. He was crazy. When they got rid of Brother Malcolm X, they said he was preaching hate. He deserved what he got. But when they got rid of Brother Martin Luther King, they had absolutely no reason to do so. He was the one man in our race who was trying to teach our people to have love, compassion, and mercy for what white people had done. When white America killed Dr. King last night, she declared war on us. In their definitive book on the Black Panthers, Joshua Bloom and Waldo Martin, they describe how the King assassination really launched the Black Panthers to become a legit national organization for the first time. They were formed in 1966, the Panthers, and they had previously been just like a relatively small group, local to Oakland and then L.A., but the group spreads like a prairie fire after King's death. Kathleen Cleaver, one of the prominent Panthers, she said, quote, The murder of King changed the whole dynamic of the country. That is probably the single most significant event in terms of how the Panthers were perceived by the black community. End quote. The death of King demonstrated that no black man was safe from white violence. So it's no wonder that, that a black self-defense group, the Black Panthers, exploded after King's assassination. But as they begin to grow across the country, the Panthers are still strongest in California, though, both in Oakland and, and in L.A., their first two chapters. And their single greatest enemy in those early days is the governor of that state, Ronald Reagan. Reagan becomes an early leader in the war against the Panthers, which so often became bound up in a phrase, law and order. So what were the Panthers? Named in full, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. Well, they were just that. They were a group formed to defend themselves against white cops. And in 1966, when they started, I mean, it's pretty much all white cops. They're not a, they're not a whole lot of black cops in the mid-60s. 
So, you know, whether you're into Black Lives Matter or not, I'm pretty sure we can all agree that 50 years ago, when the Panthers started, we can all imagine, you know, how racist these cops must have been. And their unchecked brutality was what led Huey Newton and Bobby Seale to form this group to patrol their neighborhoods and monitor arrest, to make sure that citizens weren't being beaten or, or killed. And what they found was that police were a lot less likely to have their way with black subjects of, of traffic stops and this sort of stuff when the community was watching. And, you know, armed. See, California was an open carry state. Like so many conservative southern states now, you could, you could openly carry firearms. And this is how the Panthers would patrol their neighborhoods and show up to monitor arrests, exercising their Second Amendment right, lawfully. <laughs> but now suddenly, that open carry law is scary when it's black folks protecting themselves. And Reagan, again, then the governor, signed a law in 1967 specifically intended to end the Panthers' ability to carry firearms. It's the only instance I can think of where conservatives, including the NRA, were suddenly and, and ever so briefly against open carry laws. So Reagan is the governor fighting with this, with this nascent Black Panther Party in California. And so Reagan thus becomes one of the prominent law and order conservative politicians. What that phrase meant in the 60s, as much as anything, was an end to protests for civil rights, women's rights, against the military-industrial complex. Protest against the order. Think about it. What was the order in the 60s? Well, I mean, it was white rule. It was patriarchal order. All that. Think about, okay, think about the, the thought experiment from, from earlier, if you remember, when folks from the 90s closed their eyes and, and, and imagined a drug criminal. Now, close your eyes and imagine a room of powerful people from the 60s. Who do you see? I don't know about you, but I see a room full of white men. Whether it's the White House, Congress, police department, CEOs, uh, lawyers, stockbrokers, whatever, et cetera, et cetera. Anywhere there's power... It's either all white men or very, very, very close to it. That's the order. And the protests of the 60s against that order were seen by conservatives as a breakdown in law and order. So to preach law and order was a promise to use state power, very often in the form of police power, against those forces protesting for change, a change in that order. A change in the order of, of white male power. And as the Black Panthers emerge, so does Reagan as their most visible opponent, the protector of white law and order against these men seen as terrifying monsters. Why are more and more millions of Americans turning to Governor Wallace? Open a little business and see what might happen. As president... I will stand up for your local police and firemen in protecting your safety and property. Meanwhile, in 1968, Alabama Governor George Wallace is on the presidential campaign trail. And he's on his way to basically sweeping the South with a message of, of like sort of coded racism and this law and order talk. And with that message, he wins an astonishing five states as a third party candidate. 
most successful third-party candidate we've ever seen. And his success convinces the Republican Party that, oh, the key is to use this, this coded racialized rhetoric and this law and order talk to steal Southern whites from the Democrats. That's the key to winning the presidency. If you promise this law and order against the protests and the civil rights movement and all this, all the stuff that had been, you know, these rhetorical tools of Wallace's, you can start to make inroads into the South, which was controlled by the Democratic Party. See, we don't think about it much now, but it used to be that the, the South, the old Confederacy, was like wall-to-wall Democrats since the Civil War, or since, you know, Reconstruction, at least. Lincoln was the first Republican president. The Republican Party was brand new when when this guy Abraham Lincoln was running for president. And he wins the presidency in 1860 and pretty much inaugurates this new party, this new Republican Party. And then the South, you know, secedes to maintain slavery. They fight the Civil War. And so for the next hundred years, like this entire century, the South didn't fuck with the Republicans at all. They called it the Solid South, total Democratic Party control of the South. But George Wallace's victories, again, the greatest showing by a third party presidential candidate, showed that you didn't have to be a Democrat to win the South. You just had to use this racialized politics. This law and order talk and all this stuff that appealed to these salty-ass white folks in the South. And this became what was called the Southern Strategy. When Republicans learned how to take what Wallace had done and sort of polish it up for a legit national presidential campaign. You don't have to say the N-word, you know, to express to white folks that you'd be tough on black folks. You simply find ways to express the idea without saying, you know, just those little handful of words that are considered actually racist. And law and order was very much one of those coded phrases. So Richard Nixon, a Republican, following George Wallace's lead, really initiated what became known as that Southern strategy, appealing to racist white folks in the South and elsewhere with language that you could you could feasibly deny was was about race. Again, it's about coding your your language. You don't have to use the N-word or or whatever. But but listen, angry-ass white folks know what you're saying. They know that you're going to be tough on the black folks. Nixon's chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, wrote in his diary during this time after having some some conversations that day with with President Nixon, who would be soon running for for re-election. He writes, quote, President emphasized that you have to face the fact that the whole problem really is the blacks. The key is to devise a system that recognizes this while not appearing to. End quote. That's the whole thing. The whole Southern strategy boiled down. Be able to speak to white anger, white resentment and fear in a changing America where black folks do have a little bit more power now, but you talk in ways where you can deny that you're talking about race. See, Nixon had learned from Governor Wallace that talking about, quote, states' rights, 
and, quote, big government were heard by these white Southerners pissed off about the end of Jim Crow as a promise to keep black folks in their place. If you look at George Wallace's most famous speech, known as the Segregation Forever speech, it's his first inaugural address as Alabama governor, you see him repeat throughout the speech this idea of this big, bad, evil government in Washington. He says this sort of thing over and over again. And you see this rhetoric of the Southern strategy continue right up to Reagan's inaugural address in 1981, where Reagan says, quote, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem, end quote. That is taken right from the Wallace playbook by way of Nixon. Lee Atwater one of the architects of the Southern strategy, and and later a Reagan aide, he explained the Southern strategy in a rather candid interview in 1981. I'm going to play a little bit of it here. It's a little tough to hear because it's a shitty tape recording from 1981, but but listen close. You start out in 1954 by saying nigger, nigger, nigger. By 1968, you can't say nigger. That hurts your backfire. So you say stuff like uh, forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And... You're getting so abstract now. You're talking about cutting taxes and all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things. And the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. Now, Atwater goes on to say that Reagan no longer pursued this Southern strategy, but, but that's not right. What's more accurate to say is that Reagan sort of modified it. Reagan updated the Southern strategy. Reagan, of course, was known as the California governor who had beaten down the Black Panthers and embodied that law and order politician. Reagan kicked off his campaign just outside Philadelphia, Mississippi, the site of the the 1964 Mississippi burning Klan murders of civil rights workers. Reagan's people had been told that this was the place to get, quote, George Wallace-inclined voters. In Reagan's speech that day, the first campaign event to kick off his, his general election campaign, It relied on rhetoric about, quote, states' rights. A Southern strategy phrase, if there ever was one, states' rights. Reagan, in Mississippi, in the Deep South, talks about states' rights vis-a-vis that big, bad government. All right out of the Southern strategy playbook. A standard stump speech of Reagan's during that 1980 campaign was described in a New York Times article. And let me just read a short excerpt from that article. Quote, After first noting that his audience is composed of, quote, hardworking people who pay their bills and put up with high taxes, Mr. Reagan frequently tells them about Taino Towers, a four-building subsidized housing project in New York City. If you are a slum dweller, Mr. Reagan says, you can get an apartment with 11-foot ceilings, with a 20-foot balcony, a swimming pool and gymnasium, laundry room and playroom, and the rent begins at $113.20, and that includes utilities. End quote. End of the excerpt. That's total bullshit. First of all, what Reagan is saying there. This lap of luxury <laughs> that, that poor folks live in. But what he's trying to imply, and, and what white conservatives are hearing, is that poor folks, by which he means the urban poor, a.k.a. black folks and people of color, are, are living it up. And they're taking advantage of us good people, by which he means white people. And there's that Southern strategy sort of updated. 
that Southern strategy-coded racism of big government used by George Wallace, by which he meant the big government that helped black folks by ending segregation in Jim Crow, well, now it's a big government, same phrase, that still helps black folks by providing social welfare to people who have never been, still never offered a chance to catch up with everybody else. From Wallace to Reagan, it's still the same bad guy, the same coded phrase, big government, still the same reason for vilifying that big government, for helping black folks. It's the same thing. So we might describe all this as as sort of the Reagan corollary to the Southern strategy, the 2.0 version of the Southern strategy which relies on this terror of the of this this boogeyman the inner city black male but now plus this idea that not only do black folks have it good that they'd gained total social and economic equality in the in the 12 years between King's death and and Reagan's campaign in 1980 but now they have it too good like we'd we'd overshot the mark somehow and now Poor black folks are somehow in a privileged class. And that Reagan's good white people, you know, slave to support this privileged class of of black folks. And so now we get Reagan's patented welfare queen, that that black moocher of welfare programs, food stamps and, and the like. And in his second year in office, Reagan sort of officially launches his war on drugs, and he uses that same framework, referring to the, quote, emergence of a new privileged class in America, by which he means drug criminals. Reagan frames poverty and and being trapped in the world of drugs as privilege. Remember how he, he just referred to his white audience on the campaign trail from a little while ago, quote, hardworking people who pay their bills and put up with high taxes. The ones with money, the ones far from the world of of urban drug crime, they're the ones who have it rough. And it's the, the welfare queens and this new privileged class of drug dealers, like young Sean Carter, young Jay Z, who are the lucky ones just living easy where we hustle out of a sense of hopelessness, sort of a desperation. Through that desperation, we come addicted, sort of like the fiends we accustomed to serving. Where we feel we have nothing to lose. Reagan then accelerates his drug war in 1986 with his landmark drug law of that year. It expands the prison system and institutes this clearly racist 100 to 1 disparity where a small amount of crack could send you to prison for the same length sentence as having a hundred times that much powder cocaine. Reagan's 1986 drug law is a landmark moment in the war on drugs, and it puts the United States on its way to imprisoning more of its citizens than any nation on earth. More than China, Cuba, Russia, Iran, all, all the nations that we consider authoritarian police states. The United States is the most imprisoned nation on earth. It's the Southern strategy turned into drug law. They could deny it was about race. And yet, the prison industrial complex in the subsequent years and decades imprisons black Americans for drug crime at an insanely disproportionate rate. Reagan signs that bill into law on October 27, 1986. I'm not sure how you get more 
like, darkly ironic than Reagan signing the bill that day. With all his talk about America finally getting serious about the crack crisis and, and all those bad people responsible for it. Because it was that very day, just hours before, on October 27th, that Los Angeles law enforcement launched their massive sting on a Nicaraguan cocaine ring in Southern California. If you remember from episode one, you know how this drug sting turns out. The man at the center of this drug sting, the principal target, is a Nicaraguan exile named Danilo Blandone. Now, Blandone was not just some random Nicaraguan exile now. He'd been one of the few wealthy Nicaraguans in Somoza's circle before the Sandinista Revolution. He'd even been a contractor for the Guardia, Somoza's brutal private army. His dad had been this wealthy slumlord in Managua, the capital of Nicaragua. The Blandone family was one of those uh, obscenely wealthy families for whom, you know, when, when the Sandinista Revolution hits, they're fucked up. Their, their, their wealth is going to get redistributed now. And so they're part of this, this wealthy Nicaraguan exile community that is starting to form these, these groups that would eventually become the Contras. They want to get their wealth back. They want to go back home and take their shit back. Never mind the fact that the, the only reason that they were so absurdly wealthy is because they were plugged in with, with this bullshit dictator, Somoza. Their wealth was absolutely predicated on, on, the, on the just awful poverty of the rest of the Nicaraguans. If there's ever been an oligarchy on this earth, it was Nicaragua under Somoza. And that's what they want back. Now, Danilo Blandone's wife, she was even more well-connected with the Somozas than, than he was. They were plugged in heavy to that wealth. Her father had been the mayor of Managua. I mean, her whole family was filled with all these powerful players in the Somoza regime. And they wanted their shit back. Now, Danilo Blandone's cocaine was coming from another wealthy and powerful Nicaraguan under Somoza, this guy Norwin Meneses. Norwin's brother, Edmundo, had been this powerful Guardia officer, so powerful that he controlled the Managua Police Department. That was sort of a top post in the Guardia. The police department in, in Managua was, it was a subdivision of, of the Guardia. The, the Guardia controlled, controlled everything under Somoza. Norwin Meneses' brother, Edmundo, was even a favorite general of Somoza's. He was a real big shot. And so it was no surprise that, that Norwin Meneses was allowed to run Managua's underground. It's a pretty sweet gig when you're, when you're a narco-trafficker and your brother is a favorite general of Somoza's and he runs the Managua Police Department. Somoza's Guardia was corrupt as fuck. And Norwin Meneses was this well-trained narco-trafficker before the Sandinista Revolution, before they ended this party of corruption and, and obscene wealth under Somoza. And it was these Nicaraguans' massive cocaine trafficking operation that I mentioned in the first episode. 
A handful of, of these sharp investigators in Southern California had traced the money from these Nicaraguans, thousands of kilos. They traced the money back to the Contras. The warrant for the sting was applied for with a 21-page sworn statement that revealed explicitly that this was another fundraising effort for the Contras. Just like hitting up apartheid South Africa and Saudi Arabia for funds, just like diverting profits from Iranian arms sales. Danilo Blandone and Norwin Manesi's unlimited cocaine pipeline had essentially created the Los Angeles crack market, the first in the United States. We're talking tens of thousands of kilos delivered into where the crack crisis began, all to fund the Contras. And just Hours before Reagan signs his draconian drug law, his racist drug law, where he's going to get tough on this cocaine and crack. Just hours before that, seven divisions of Los Angeles area law enforcement roll up on Danilo Blandone and his men to end their drug ring. And every location they hit looks scrubbed clean of drugs, money, anything to do with what we now know they were doing. And from the top all the way down, the police, detectives, the sheriffs, they all agree. Blandone's men had been tipped off. But by whom? of the United States vis-a-vis Latin America and Central America. There has never been a time when a country made a revolution for the poor people where it was not overthrown by the CIA, overthrown by the CIA, overthrown by the CIA, overthrown by the CIA. 